We're going to transition the young people to their children's experience. Any of our K through fifth grade youngsters who would like to transition out while I'm speaking uh, to an experience tailored to them, then they will transition back. They can follow Miss Whitney and they will come back before worship is over into the third part of our worship experience. So as we transition now from our finding time to our forming time, we are going to collect our offering. Uh, So if I can get our ushers to collect our offering. Uh, Remember, if you uh, participated in Parable of the Talents, feel free to bring that back anytime now. Uh, Put it in an envelope, write talents on it so we can keep track of that. Write down a story, you know, about what you did, how, how you enjoyed that. You know, did you meet somebody... Um, what you know? What did you do? What worked? What didn't work? <clears throat> uh, but that's one of the reasons we did that too, so that we can um, uh, so that we can share those stories. So uh, if you need more time, take it. Uh, this isn't uh, you know this wasn't a thing to do to force you into um, doing a thing in a certain amount of time. If you need more time, take it. Uh, the band's taking a little bit more time, but they're doing something creative. Uh, so if you have a bigger idea, take that time. Do that. Uh, remind you of of the things that are coming up. Uh, just keep keep uh, in check on our newsletter. Make sure you read the newsletter. It comes out Thursday, 6 p.m. every week. If you're not signed up for an e-newsletter, you can sign up by uh, tearing this little sheet off, write your name, your email address. We will get you signed up uh, so that you can be on top of the news at New Life. All right, well, let's, uh, as we transition now to forming, let us uh, join in a time of prayer, uh, and we'll dig into our subject. Let us pray. Lord, we thank You for this opportunity to gather tonight to worship You, to dig into Scripture, to deal with questions that are uncomfortable, that we are confused about. Help us now open our hearts and our minds. Send Your Spirit upon us. Fill us with Your love and compassion that we may understand this scary, uncertain, but powerful thing called hell. Bring us together. Help us question, but help us most of all be one, as you are one. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Well, welcome once again to New Life. I am Mark Myers, and I want to welcome all of those who are joining us online through our podcast, all of those joining us uh, on our website, www.findnewlifeumc.org. So if you haven't missed any of these, we're in Love Wins. Uh, feel free to catch up online. Uh, and, and just we, we just in the last few weeks, we've had about 400 or so um, those listening to our last series. So a lot of people listening online. So we welcome them as well. So we are in the second week of our series, Love Wins, using the resource Love Wins by uh, Rob Bell. Talked a little bit more about that last week. Encourage you to get that, uh, to read that as well. Uh, controversial, but some good stuff in there. Uh, tonight, last week we looked at heaven. Tonight, we're looking at the other place, the less fun place to talk about. Uh, so not a lot of jokes tonight, uh, as this is a fairly serious topic. Over the, the many years of my life, I have been told by individuals, by faithful men and women who are followers of Jesus Christ, reasons that I was going to hell. Now, I'm not talking about... Um, theoretical issues on the internet, or I'm not talking about 
um, ways that I believe. I'm talking about literally people talking to me and telling me why I am going to hell. So here's some reasons over the years. I'm going to hell because I do not pray correctly. Because I wore the wrong kind of cross. Because I read the wrong kind of Bible. Because I was not baptized in the right denomination or that I was baptized as a child or that I was baptized not by total immersion but by sprinkling. That I was ordained in the wrong denomination. That I have friends who are sinners. That's one of my favorites. That I have friends who are not Christian. That I have friends who are gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender. That I have friends who have had abortions. I'm going to hell because in my life I have drank, smoked, played cards, danced, and had sex for other reasons than procreation. God have mercy on my immortal soul. Is that our story? Is our story that if you do not believe or say a certain thing, you are going to hell and you are going to suffer and be in pain forever and ever and ever? Is that good news? Is that just? Is that true? All those people who told me that I was going to go to hell would have also told each other that they were going to have gone to hell. So who's right? Who's wrong? Who's actually going to hell? So today we're going to take a look. We're going to take a look at hell. First, uh, like many of these issues, we need to look and see what actually, what what the word is, and then we're going to go through Scripture, and and we're actually going to do a a, a word study tonight. I know that's exciting to a lot of you. It's exciting to me. Uh, We have these things called concordances that you can get. Some of you have them in the back of your Bibles that actually tell you where all the words are in the Bible uh, what you know? If you look up hell, it tells you where hell is in the Bible, uh, and, and that helps us give a little more understanding of these these and many terms. So we're going to do a word study tonight as a congregation uh, to look into this thing called hell. But first, we need to know something about the word hell. Hell is an English word. Was the Bible written in English? It was not. Hell is a word that comes from the English language derived around 750 A.D. or 725 A.D., excuse me, referring to an Anglo-Saxon understanding of a place of death or place of the dead. To my knowledge, Jesus and the Bible were written before them. So the word hell is not technically in the Bible. It is a word that we have used when talking about other words in the Bible. So let's look at some of those other words as they appear in the Old and New Testament. Let's start with the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, the uh, first half of your Bible uh, for many of you. What we call the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Scriptures of the people of Israel. There are many, and I'm not going to do all of the um, passages, but there are many words to describe what we would consider hell in the Old Testament. Or there are many phrases that have been translated as hell in some of our Bibles. Now, you will find in a lot of modern translations, English translations, that the word hell is used less and less, and some of these other words and phrases are used more and more because they're more accurate, they depict it, uh, and they don't immediately bring to mind those images that we have of hell in our popular culture. So, one of the most common words is a beautiful word, sheol. 
And Sheol is the place of the dead. Uh, It's kind of the Hebrew eschatology about where you go when you die. The cords of Sheol entangled me. That's from Psalm 18. We also see mention of the depths. Will I exalt you, Lord, for you lifted me out of the depths. That's Psalm 30. A lot of these will come from Psalms. Psalms, beautiful and poetic. We also see references to the pit. The Lord who redeems your life from the pit. Psalm 103. We also find reference to the grave. Who will praise you from the grave? I love that passage. Will they sing your praises from the grave? Finally, there's the term realm of the dead or the phrase realm of the dead. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. And that's from Psalm 16. So what do we gain from all these passages in the Old Testament? One thing we see when we look at all of the uh, passages of Sheol, all the passages of death and the pit, the depths, the grave, the realm of the dead, we see God's power over life and death. The God of the Old Testament is a God who has power over life and power over death. God seems to be involved and present in whatever happens to people when they die. Although the topics of afterlife and resurrection are not real prevalent in the Old Testament. The people of Israel in the Old Testament were much less concerned about what happened to them when they died. They were much more concerned about what happened to them when they were alive. For them, life and death are not periods of existence, i.e. you live and then you die, but they were ways to describe how you were existing in the presence. You are either alive or you are dead. And when they talked about that, they meant people in this room who are all technically alive could be described as alive or dead. Are you living life to the fullest or have you given up? Are you living as God intended or have you turned away from God? They would say one is the way of life, one is the way of death. That is the theology of the people of Israel. Now realize this de-emphasis on afterlife may have had something to do with uh, one of Israel's neighbors. And when I say neighbors, I mean that uh, a little sarcastically. Remember for centuries, the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt. And if you know anything about Egypt and their religion and their eschatology, what happens at the end, right? That's what eschatology means. They built these things called pyramids. And they worshipped their kings as gods. And when those kings died, they built them these great, ginormous pyramids. And what did they put in the pyramids? Things for places when they would go when they died. They entombed their body and they, in that tomb, put millions and probably billions of dollars worth of gold and valuables. Some of these tombs, and you can go to a uh, field museum and see some of these things. I encourage you to do that. I'm not making any money from the field museum, but it is very interesting. Uh, In some of those tombs, you would actually have boats, full-size boats, so that you could be carried across to the land of the dead. Now, if a culture had suppressed you and enslaved you and tortured you and abused you for 500 years and they were obsessed 
with taking all of this wealth and these possessions to the afterlife, you may have a sour taste in your mouth when it came to the afterlife. People of Israel were concerned with how we lived, not what life would be like when they died. Now the Pharisees of Jesus' time believed in a resurrection. And they believed they would be with God and Father Abraham when they died. But their emphasis was still on life. But that's the Old Testament. And I know sometimes we say, well, why do we read the Old Testament? Jesus wasn't there. He was around. But, uh, so let's look to the New Testament. There are a few words we translate in English as hell from Greek in the New Testament. New Testament was written in Greek. Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Jesus didn't speak either of those languages. Probably spoke Aramaic. But the words that we get from Greek are Gehenna, Tartarus and Hades. Some of those terms are familiar to you, probably. So let's look at the first word, and that is the word Gehenna. And this is one that's probably most used in places you think about when the Bible talks about hell. The word Gehenna is found 12 times in the New Testament. It refers to an actual place, a literal place that you can walk to, you can go there. Gehenna, the valley of of Hinnom. And it was an awful place. Anybody know what it was? Or what it is? It's still around. It was a garbage dump. Yes. And it burned unending flames. You ever been to a tire yard? Ever smelled that? Sulfur and ash and flame. And in this city dump, There was food and there was things that attracted wild animals. And as they gathered around that dump, you could hear clawing and gnashing of teeth. A place of eternal fire. A place where you could hear gnashing of teeth. Does that sound familiar? It sounds like hell. That is the word Gehenna a place of literal fire, literal gnashing of teeth. Now James uses it in the uh, epistle of James. He uses it once to describe the power of the tongue. But the other 11 times... Now, uh, I need to stop. On here, you have all, I believe, 23, 22 uses of hell in the New Testament. I've written them out for you. So if you have a pen and you are interested... I'm going to leave this slide up most of the night uh, until I'm done preaching. So take your time. You can write those down. Uh, I can email those to you however you'd like that. That's every use of the word hell in the New Testament. Why do I do that? Because I want you to go home and read these passages so that you can dig into the Bible, you can study, you can talk to each other, and you can come up to see what it says for yourself. Now the other 11 uses of the word Gehenna come from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So let's quickly go through them all. Anyone who says you fool will be in danger of hell, Matthew 5.22. And it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And we hear references to that in Matthew 5.29, 5.30, Mark 9.43, and Mark 9.45. Jesus says, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Matthew 10, 28, Luke 12, 
5. And it is better for you to enter into life. We talked about that last week, right? Entering into a life or eternal life, life in the age to come, with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fires of hell, literally the fires of Gehenna. Matthew 18, 9, Mark 9, 47. Now Jesus tells very religious people, scribes and priests and Pharisees, if you win converts, you are making twice them, or you are making them twice children of hell, Matthew 23:15. And he asked these religious folks, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Matthew 23:33. That's hell. That's Gehenna. All right? Let's move on to these other words. There are two other words translated as hell in English that come from Greco-Roman traditions, Tartarus and Hades. St. Peter uses the word Tartarus once. God did not spare the angels when he sinned, but cast them down into the lowest level of hell. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 casting angels down into Tartarus. I see some of you putting together our angel-demon theology here, coming together from St. Peter. What was Tartarus? Tartarus was a level of Hades. Hades was the place of the dead. In Greco-Roman eschatology, study of the end times, there was a place called Hades, and Hades was a god. He was one of the three major gods, Poseidon, Zeus, and Hades. Zeus, of course, god of the sky. Poseidon, god, god of the ocean. Hades, god of the dead. And when you died in Greco-Roman culture, remember, this is the stories of Zeus and stories of Poseidon, stories of Hades, stories of our heroes like Hercules and Percy Jackson. Probably a lot of your children know more about this than you do. Right? Percy Jackson, you're not... You, Kathy knows a lot about Percy Jackson. This is important for you to know because this affects our modern understanding of hell, which was not Jewish or Jesus, but was Greek and Roman. When you died, you either went to two places. The Elysian Fields, if you were good. And what did the Elysian Fields look like? It was bright and sunny and your family was there and all the people you loved were there. Or you went to Tartarus and what was Tartarus? It was not a fun place. It was a place of torture and suffering and you went there if you were bad. You start to see how other religions are affecting our theology of hell. But Jesus uses that. He's talking to people that understand that because they've been oppressed by Rome and Greece. The Romans and the Greeks made them worship, made them bow down to the emperor, made them bow down in false ways to false idols, and the people of Israel did not appreciate that. But Jesus uses this word, Hades, many times. Nine times, in fact in the New Testament. Actually, I should say John mentions it three times in Revelations. Revelations, a book written in code, a book written to sneak under the Roman Empire's gaze as it's sent out to various churches across the Christian, small Christian world at that point. 
God has the keys to death and hell, the saint or the writer of Revelations John says. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse, and its rider was death, and hell was following close behind, Revelations 6, 8. And death and hell gave up the dead that were in them, Revelations twenty thirteen. Those are very interesting passages. I want to read them again. God has the keys over death and Hades, hell. I looked, and therefore before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind. Hell was following close behind. And, I think this is exceptionally important, at the end of the story, at the end of our Bible, death and hell gave up the dead that were in them. It's also used in Acts, which is actually a quote from Psalm 16. He was not abandoned into Hades, into hell, I believe Psalm 16 uses the phrase, the depths. Now Jesus, this is how Jesus uses it. No, you will go down to hell. Matthew 11.23, Luke 10.15. I like this next one. Upon this rock, who is the rock? Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell, of Hades, will not overcome it. Hades actually had gates in the stories, right? Matthew 16, 18. And then there's a story that this word Hades appears, and I'm going to look at the story in a little depth. And it's a story about Lazarus and a rich man. It's a parable. It comes from Luke chapter 16, verse 23. We talked about parables a lot this Lenten season, so here's another parable that Jesus tells us. Story, Jesus tells us. Help us understand things that are hard to understand. Now there was a certain rich man who clothed himself in purple and fine linen and who feasted luxuriously every day. At his gate lay a certain poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. Lazarus longed to eat the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. Instead, dogs would come and lick his sores. Jesus had a way with words, didn't he? The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. While being tormented in hell, Hades, he looked up and he saw Abraham at a distance with Lazarus. He shouted, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I'm going to read that again. Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Because I'm suffering in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, Remember that during your lifetime you received many good things, whereas Lazarus received terrible things. Now Lazarus is being comforted and you are in great pain. Moreover, a great crevice has been fixed between us from there to you. Those who wish to cross over from here to you cannot, neither can anyone cross from there to us. 
The rich man said, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house. I have five brothers. They need to be warned so they don't come to this place of agony. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They must listen to them. The rich man said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will change their hearts and lives. Abraham said, If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, then neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. That is a great story. There's a lot going on in there. Now, we talked a lot about parables. This is a parable. This is a story that has something to teach us. This is a story about hell. And I think there's a few things about hell we can learn from this parable. First of all, this story ends with a hint of the resurrection. Interesting. Talking about being risen from the dead. Now, this was going to happen very soon when Jesus told this story in Luke chapter 16. In a few chapters, the resurrection would happen. The audience that is hearing this for the first time is getting a foretaste of what was going to happen. That's interesting. This, like all parables, was bringing a story about the age to come, about heaven and hell, and bringing it to here, to this age, to now. Everything Jesus did seemed to take what would be and made it about today. Remember, he comes from a tradition that was more focused on here than later. Not that they didn't believe in later, but they were focused on here. Now second, and and I emphasized it so maybe that you would pick up on it a little bit, notice what the rich man asks. Send twice. Send Lazarus. Send Lazarus. And I read this parable dozens of times. I never picked up on this insight. The rich man is asking Lazarus to serve him because he thinks he is better than Lazarus. The rich man cannot get rid of his life and living feeling that he was better, that his position made him better, that he deserved to be served by people who were less than him. Even in hell, even suffering, he wants to be served by this man who he felt was below him. Jesus affirms both then and now that God does not see social classes or class distinctions. Jesus is challenging those elitists who were around him, reminding him that in the kingdom of God, there is something called equality. We talked a lot about that. This is also a story about new life. Jesus teaches us that if we have, excuses me, teaches us that we have to die if we are going to live. The rich man died. He literally died in the story. He was dead and buried, but he did not die as we are called to die. He did not die to himself so that he could be raised in new life. He did not let go of the pride that he had in life 
so that He could be humble in eternity. Jesus is warning us that it takes a death to truly live. Jesus is telling us that the rich man is alive in death because he did not die in life. Try explaining that complex theology to your family and friends. Jesus used a story. (laughs) Seems like a good option at the time. There's something else. This is a story about a neighbor. Lazarus was sitting outside the gates. I don't think it's by chance that we have a renaissance and a modern images of heaven and hell with gates. Here this poor man is sitting outside of the gates. How close of a neighbor could you get? All he would have had to do is send a servant out with some food, but he ignored him completely. He could have taken him in. He probably had the resources. He had five brothers living with him after all. He probably had some space. He could have befriended Lazarus. He could have brought him in. He could have cared for him. But he did not. He was not a good neighbor. He was a terrible neighbor. And there's consequences for being a bad neighbor. Jesus says time and time again, if you love the least of these, then you love me. It's a lot about hell. Now, given what we know, given what we've read in the Bible from Jesus and Christ, what is hell? Now, I think our answer is very similar to our answer to what is heaven. Hell is a place somewhere far, yet somewhere close. It's a place of separation and death, a place and a state of being. Like heaven, we can experience it in our lives. And like heaven, we can make hell on earth. That seems to be what Jesus is warning us over and over again in these passages. He's warning, be careful, watch out. If you do not live for God, you can make hell a reality in your life, in your community, in your place in your world. You can bring hell to earth. Last week we talked about bringing heaven to earth. Jesus talked about that. Bringing bringing heaven to earth, we say, Lord, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. But the reality is we can be bringers of hell. Anyone who has struggled with addiction understands the grip of hell. Anyone who's been the victim of a terrible crime like the murder of a loved one or sexual assault understands what it means to live in hell. Those who are trapped in abusive relationships. I recently led that, read that there are 13, or was told by DCFS or somebody, that there are 1,300 children in the system, not with their birth parents, in Winnebago County. Children like my children many of whom were living hell, whether they knew it or not. All those who never have enough. All those who can never find peace or joy. People who cannot escape their perpetual negativity or hatred. 
feel a little bit of hell every day. Hell can be a personal prison. It can be physical. It can be emotional. It can be spiritual. But more dangerously and more importantly, hell can be more than just individual. As a society, we have the ability to bring hell to earth. I would not want to be living in certain parts of our world right now. There is rebellion in Iraq. People are taking arms to the streets. There are Christian and Muslim and Buddhist and and Jewish good men and women in Iraq, in Baghdad, who want to wake up, love their children, go to work, and go to bed. And there are people threatening to kill them. Because. If that's not hell, I don't know what is. For these communities who are ravished by hunger, by poverty, not just overseas, but here. There are 80 homeless children in Harlem School District. There are more in Rockford School District. 205. Children without a home, children without a place, children without food. That should not be okay. There are entire countries that are ravished by poverty. We are supporting Imagine No Malaria because in South Africa, millions of people are dying from a curable disease. We're trying to bring heaven, not hell, to earth. These are places not unlike Gehenna. They actually exist. They're actually pretty horrible. They're places where people suffer and die every day. So hell can be personal. Hell can be societal. Jesus asked and challenged us time and time again throughout Scripture, which kingdom do you value? Do you value the kingdom of heaven? Do you value the kingdom of hell? Because you can make both a reality. He said, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Not the other way around. So do we value that? A kingdom where God and God's will and God's goodness rules. Or do we value a place where suffering and death rule? I think very few people would argue that they fight for the kingdom of heaven, but sometimes our decisions hurt other people. And sometimes as a society, the things that we do, the laws that we make, the decisions as we make as a group actually work towards the opposite. That's why I try to pray for our leaders, whether they're Christian or not, whether they are good or not, that regardless, God will work with them and through them to lead us towards this kingdom of heaven, not the opposition. Jesus told us to value one another, to love each other, and to do good things so that heaven, not hell, would come on earth. Now one final thought tonight. I could have gone on and on about, uh, in, into depth about ideas about hell, and, and we'll talk about the issue of salvation over in the next couple of weeks. But hell's not a simple topic. Again, it is a place both here and now, both later and sometime else. I told you last week I understand my call to make heaven a reality. I believe that 
there is a place for me in the resurrection. Someday when Jesus comes again, I'm kind of unsure about what happens in between. And that's kind of my reality about hell. But I intentionally gave you these 22 passages so that you could study them. So that you could read them in context. So that you could ask yourself, what do I believe? Because you are the ones going out into your world and sharing good news. Talking to your brothers and sisters. Talking to your family members. Talking to your neighbors and telling them what they need to do. What they have to do. And I believe if we have a poor theology of hell, it can put a crevice between a gap between our neighbors and us. And that's never my intention. So come to your own conclusions. Talk to others. Come to form. Ask more questions. If you can't figure out everything, don't worry. There are plenty of Christians who will tell you they have all the answers. I tend not to listen to them. Because the closer I get to Christ and the older I get, the more I realize, the less that I know. And I'm okay with that. Because I believe in Jesus Christ and I have faith that God sent Him so that I could be saved. And that God empowers me so that heaven can be a reality. So I ask you, to look for truth yourself through Jesus Christ through our Holy Scriptures with your reason, with the tradition of the church and with your experience to understand what this is. Before you condemn others to a place, help them make a better place a reality this and every day. Amen. Let's transition now to our forwarding time. Ask the uh, band to come forward. Not easy topics, but we have to talk about them on a regular basis. I told you in the newsletter that we were in Branson and there was a group in Branson. Branson is the widest, most conservative Christian Mecca on earth. And there's a group, it is, if you didn't know that. It is like white Christian Disney World. <clears throat> it is. Well, I mean, there's actual Disney World, but that's a little too liberal for some of us. So this is, this is actually what, what a lot of us want. And, and there were people there holding signs, repent or burn. I'm not sure they were reaching anyone. I didn't have a chance to talk to them this time. I appreciate their vigor, their immediacy. But how much better is our time spent working towards heaven than trying to convince other people to stay out of hell? I think that's where I would want to spend my time. Not to belittle these issues, of course. So let us pray as we join together in worship. Lord of love, creator of heaven and earth, send your grace upon us. Fill us with your spirit. Make us people of heaven's will so that we can experience heaven on earth. Make us one as you are one. Challenge us to grow so that we may be ready for the age to come. Let us leave judgment in your hands so that we can offer peace and mercy to our neighbors. Help us share your love with all of those 
who are suffering, who are ill, who are oppressed, who are paralyzed by fear. Allow us to serve those who lead and honor those who serve. In all things, help us remember that you gave your Son so that we may have new life today and every day. In, this, in his name we pray. Amen.